Our Father, we are grateful so much that in your great wisdom, you provided for us a very simple way of understanding your plan to redeem a fallen world. Lord, we're, we're thankful that you have brought us together at this time, not only those here in the audience, but those in the listening audience who have the opportunity to learn these, these wonderful truths. How thankful for we are for a country that still respects religious freedom and protects it. And our Father, as we gather here again, we just ask for the precious blood of Jesus. There is power in that blood to wash away our sin and for his spotless robe of righteousness to be given to us now. And Lord, you are our welcome guest. We ask for the outpouring of your spirit on this subject that we'll be touching on tonight. And Lord, this is uh, the last identifying mark of your end time people. And I pray, Lord, tonight that you give us ISAV that we can see, that you will unstop our ears that we can hear and give us a soft and supple heart that we can receive and perceive what you're wanting to communicate to us. I pray again, Lord, for the speaker. May your words be in his mouth this evening is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. last night's presentation, we talked about the importance of getting this uh, message, the message of God's love revealed in a sanctuary to a world that is literally dying to know this. And we found that in the sanctuary that God had devised a plan, a very simple plan by which to fund his, these missionary endeavors, not only our local community, but around the world, and that is in the tithing and the offering system. And uh, we went into some depth on that in our last presentation. If you missed that, I encourage you to see that because we have, a, we have a part to play, every one of us. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we are commissioned as missionaries. Isn't that true? We are. What I'd like to do now is just a quick overview of our, the time we have spent in the most holy place and then lock in on a study that I mentioned sometime back that we would hit before we were done. In the, uh, the study on the Day of Atonement, we learned that on October 22, 1844, Jesus began the, his final work in the heavenly sanctuary. That's been going on for some time now, friends. And we know by the signs we're seeing all around us that the Lord Jesus is, is, is getting ready to finish his work. We also learned that while Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary of our record of sin as we ask for that cleansing, that there is to be a correlating work on earth, a corresponding work of cleansing in the lives of the people of God because we're getting ready to go home. We learned that... Uh, that in 1844, God raised up a group of reformers to put back onto the table, to pull together all the truths that were, that were raised up by the reformers and then to put it in the framework of the sanctuary. And that this work would be a worldwide work. 
and it would center on the everlasting gospel. And we learned that in the judgment it is good news because God votes in favor of his people. In the judgment, God vindicates his people. The judgment is a beautiful thing if the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And then we also have learned that this is a time for holy living, recognizing the hour in which we live. We are living, how important it is to take our focus off the things of this life, of this world, and center them on the life giver because Jesus is coming soon. Tonight's presentation, number 24 in our our series, is entitled The Sanctuary and the Testimony of Jesus. You'll remember in Lesson 17 that we looked at uh, the seven identifying marks of God's end-time people, the movement that he would raise up at the end, and we looked at those seven points. Tonight, and in that study, we actually talked about an eighth point, but we said we'd save it for later, and tonight, we're going to look at it. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Revelation chapter 12, because in Revelation 12, the Lord God gives to us two special identifying credentials of his end-time movement. And if we are going to be Bible-believing Christians, then we need to believe our Bible. (laughs) That makes sense. I run into lots of folks. In fact, just today, I got my hair cut. A nice fellow, and I was listening to the things he was saying, and it just was not lining up with, with, with Scripture at all. Bless his heart. But, uh, you know, if you're driving your car and you get a ticket and you end up in front of the judge and you say, well, I didn't know that was a law, is that going to count? I mean, is he going to say, oh, I didn't know you didn't know that? Not at all. He's going to say, you should have known. And as Christians living in a country that has religious freedom, there's no excuse for us not to spend time in this book. It's really all about priorities. That's, That's really what it boils down to. But take a look at Revelation 12, 17. And, of course, this is a fascinating chapter. About, it just looks at the controversy between Christ and Satan in broad strokes. And uh, Satan, who uh, is symbolized as a dragon, um, uh, then in verse uh, 17, he's mentioned, it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, who we've learned is a symbol of the church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Okay, and uh, so here's the identifying marks now of those who are the, the, uh, the offspring, the rest, or the remnant of God's church, and they're described as those who keep the commandments of God. How many of the commandments? Is it like three of them, four? How about 90? Would you take nine? It's 10, right? We learned that uh, if we're unfaithful in one, uh, we have broken them all. So with those who keep the commandments of God, all 10, and here's the one we're going to study tonight and have the testimony of? Jesus Christ. So we're going to unpack this identifying mark tonight because we want to make sure that we are part of God's end time movement. Isn't that true? We want to be there. So if you will, you have your lessons with you. Let's, um, I'm going to read the introduction if you'll follow along with me. A prophet was God's mouthpiece to his people. And it was the work of the prophet to speak words of edification, exhortation, and comfort to the people of God. 
In short, the messages of the prophet would serve to build up the experience of God's people through the progressive stages of the unfolding plan of salvation as revealed in the sanctuary. The Hebrew people of the outer court were given the gift of prophecy. Let me, pro- let me stop right there. What we're going to go into now, we're going to find that the sanctuary actually divides the era of God's people into three eras. Very, very interesting. The outer court <clears throat> uh, represents the era of the Jewish nation. Their mission was to introduce to the world the Lamb of God that takes away the, the sin of the world. It was their work to introduce the world to the Messiah. And uh, after doing that, they were to follow Jesus by faith. After his sacrifice and resurrection, they were to follow him by faith into the most holy place. But we know that the, the Jewish nation rejected Christ as the Messiah. And Jesus warned them that by so doing, they would be passed by and he would raise up another nation. And that other nation was the Christian church. And so the Christian church is the church of the holy place. They were to introduce to the world a risen Savior who is mediating on the right hand of God on behalf of us all. Then, in the 1880s, when Christ was done with his work of mediation and transferred his work, his final work in the most holy place, they were to announce to the world that Christ now was entering into the judgment process, getting ready to return. But we know from the second angel's message of Revelation 14 that the majority of the Christian world rejected that message. Enter now the third phase of God's uh, people and that is the remnant church. Their job is to tell the world of the soon coming of Christ. Do you got that? That makes sense? Okay, so let's unpack that. I pick up now where it says the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people of the outer court were given the gift of prophecy in men like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, to name a few. After Christ's death, and resurrection, the scene changed to his ministration in the holy place in heaven. Here we find that the Christian church of the holy place also had its prophets with men like John, Peter, and Paul. We have learned that in 1844, the scene changed to the most holy place in heaven where Jesus inaugurated the third and final phase of the plan of salvation. Here, we were introduced to Christ's final church, the remnant church of the last days. Will this last church also be given the gift of prophecy? We have discovered that in 1844, Jesus began the work of raising up a bold group of reformers to rediscover and proclaim the truths concerning the heavenly mediation of Jesus. This remnant people of Bible prophecy are to extend this final sanctuary warning to all the world. When we study the marks of God's remnant church, we learn its two plainest credentials would be they keep the what? Commandments Commandments of God and have what? The The testimony of Jesus Christ. In order to qualify as the remnant church, the church must have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the gift of prophecy 
And that's, and that's identified for us in Revelation 19.10. And we're going to spend time on that tonight. It is one of the special marks of identification of the last day church. The same gift that inspired the prophets of old will be duplicated in the end time by a restoration of the gift of prophecy to God's people. In this lesson, we wish to examine the gift of prophecy as it appeared in the life of the prophets in the scriptures and then discover if the gift of prophecy is still being manifested once more. Did God fulfill this prediction? Did he send the gift of prophecy to the remnant church of the last days? And you know, <clears throat> what I have learned over the years is that whenever God's getting ready to do something, the devil throws out counterfeits in an effort to confuse and throw people off. So, <clears throat> you know, I have run into people that claim to be prophets. I'm just curious, how many of you have run into that too? Anybody else? One, two, three, four, five, six. About six of you have. And um, so, so for that reason, if no other... We need to really pay attention tonight to see how does the Bible describe a prophet and his work. Very, very important, because that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So let's take a look at question number one. To whom does the Lord reveal his plans? Amos 3.7. Surely the Lord God does what? Nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. I am so thankful that we have a Heavenly Father that doesn't like to surprise us. Amen. Isn't that true? I am so thankful that he thinks so much of us that he wants us involved with what he's doing. He wants us aware. I love that. And not only that, he's a wonderful dad, and when we misbehave, he gives a warning. You know, when I was young, I was a rascal. And I didn't always get warnings. That wasn't fun. But when, I, when reading my Bible, I this really touched me to know that God gives warnings. I am so thankful for that. And he does, and he does it through his prophets. Very significant. Take a look now at our second question. Will there be both true and false prophets in the last days? You know, I run into people that say that and you probably have as well, that the gift of prophecy ended with the disciples. <laughs> I just find it humorous. I'm just curious. I, I asked them, what text did you pull this from? That, that it ended. I mean, where are, you, where are you pulling this out of? Let's see what the Bible has to say. Matthew 24, 11 says, then many what? False prophets will rise up and deceive many. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 24. Let's take a look at another text. Matthew 24. <clears throat> and of course, that's the chapter where Jesus describes the signs of his coming. And, well, false prophets are one of the signs. Matthew 24. And... Um, are you there? Say amen. It says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, who? The very elect. So the Lord warns us about false prophets. Now, if there weren't going to be any true prophets in the last days, wouldn't it have been just more simple for God to say, Beware of all prophets? I mean, if he says, Beware of the false one, what's the implication? There's going to be true ones as well. 
And uh, we need to be careful of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Acts 2.17. And by the way, in, in Matthew 24.11, it says, And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. You know, when the Bible uses the word many, it's always contrasted with the word few. So in other words, it's talking about the majority of earth's teeming multitudes being deceived in the last days over this. Uh, uh, Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass when? In the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your what? Daughters shall prophesy. So here's the text saying that in the last days, God is going to give the, the, the gift of prophecy. So this teaching or these people that are saying that the gift of prophecy ended with the disciples are false teachers. Or they're sincerely don't know their Bible. They sincerely don't know their Bibles. <laughs> it's one of the two. In either case, uh, you don't need to be listening to them. Um, something else here that, that comes out that's va- very interesting uh, in this text, it points out the fact that it's not just men that get the gift of prophecy. Did you pick up on that? It's ladies too. And of course, in the Old Testament, you will see uh, women who are given the gift of prophecy, women like Deborah, Huldah, Philip's daughters, and Anna, to name a few. Well, let's continue on to question number three. What types of false prophets are especially condemned in the Bible? Well, Deuteronomy 19 uh, addresses a number of them. Uh, it mentions one that, is, uh, that uses what? Divination. Uh, so these people that claim that they know the future, who's the only one that knows the future? It is God. We don't. We're linear beings. We have a beginning. We have an end. We view time. You know, we can look back at what happened and we can guess what's going to happen, but we don't know what's going to happen. But God's relationship to time is different. He is the I am. And uh, so he sees time as it runs in front of him. And, and so he can see the future. And you and I can't even wrap our brain around that. But God doesn't guess at the future. He knows it. Does that make sense? And he's the only one. Finite beings don't have that ability. Um, Letter B, an observer of what? Of times. These are astrologers, how the planets line up. Uh, Horoscopes are, you know, they even have magazines uh, that print this stuff, and they kind of tell you really important things like whether or not you should shop today. Yeah. God calls that false. So I facetiously said important stuff. No, this is error. Letter C. Also enchanters, we would refer to that as magicians, people that work deception. Uh, uh, Letter D, a witch. Uh, And we can, you know, maybe a a female psychic on that one. Uh, A charmer, a person who casts spells. Uh, Consulter with familiar spirits, a medium. A wizard is a male psychic or a... Necromancer, and also someone who consults with the dead. And this one's really interesting. Uh, I think I touched on this a while back, but world leaders today are so overwhelmed with what's happening that many of them are communicating with, uh, with the dead to get direction on what to do. Um, and it's just a shame. Why aren't they turning to the Almighty to know what to do? But we're, it's, 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 a, it's a real tragedy, but it's frightening also because um, it's, uh, it's showing us who's running things. In fact, if you'll open your Bibles, I just want to touch on this one thing, Revelation 16. 
Revelation 16, are you there? Amen, good. Verse, um, verse 15, no, uh, 14. For they are spirits of what? Devils, demons, performing signs which go to the kings of the earth. These are the world leaders. And the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day almighty. And a lot of these, these leaders don't realize they're actually communicating with demons. They have no idea. But uh, we know where things are now tending. But all these things the Lord refers to as an abomination. And in the Old Testament, and we talked about this, just a quick review, uh, God gave specific instruction that if this was found, any of these activities were found in the nation of Israel, that that was to be put down immediately, immediately. Uh, individuals engaged in this were to lose their lives. And it was an emergency measure because what these individuals were doing, they were themselves were direct conduits, uh, allowing Satan to communicate through them directly with the people, and that placed the nation in jeopardy. And rather than losing the whole nation, the Lord says, you have to do away with this. Uh, obviously, they made a choice. Isn't that true? But it wasn't a good one. Let's take a look at question number four. <clears throat> Will God's end time church have the gift of prophecy? Revelation 12, 17, we just read this. And the dragon was enraged. That means he was really angry with the woman, the church. Uh, he's not enraged with everyone, by the way. He's just enraged with the people he doesn't have. And um, these, these are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, real followers. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, and here's the description, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now let's let the Bible define for us what the testimony of Jesus Christ is. Revelation 19.10, uh, this is an angel talking to John in vision. I am your fellow servant. And what happened here is that John sees an angel and he falls down in front of him to worship and this was not a good thing. So the angel says to him, hey, get up, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Does that make sense? The Bible, there it is. There's your definition. Don't run to Webster's. Don't run to your pastor. Don't run to... The Bible just told you what it means. It's clear as crystal. So in the last days, this gift will be manifested in God's end time movement. Very, very important. So let's take a look at what the Bible says about prophets. Question number five. In what ways does God speak to a true prophet? Numbers 12, 6, and 8 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a what? A vision. I speak to him in a dream. I speak to him face to face. So these are three ways. Um, so can you think of somebody that God spoke to in a vision in the Bible? Okay, Daniel. Mary. Mary, okay. Paul, all right. We also have men like John and Isaiah. How about in a dream? And I heard Daniel over here spoke in a dream. Uh, Joseph spoke in the dream. How about face to face? This one's easy. Is Moses. Very, very good. Uh, Zechariah 4.1, now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who has wakened out of his what? Sleep. So also in a dream, we find that 
uh, he, the Lord communicates as well. Let's t- I mean, but yeah. Uh, let's take a look, uh, through an angel I meant to say. Let's take a look at the note uh, right below that. The Lord speaks to his prophets by visions, in dreams, or face-to-face, and through angels. Crystal balls, palm readings, tea leaf deciphering, stargazing, and claiming to talk with the dead are not God's methods of communicating with a prophet or his people. Does that make sense? These are channels used by the enemy of God and man. We need to delineate. You know, it's amazing, friends, when we saturate our mind with the word of God, how clearly things come into focus. I mean, it really does. Um, So the devil's job is to get people to lose confidence in the word. If he can get people to lose confidence in the word, that's like flying a plane or sailing, trying to sail the ocean without a compass. That's exactly what it is. You're not going to arrive at your destination. It will not happen. Number six, are miracles uh, definite evidence of a true prophet? <clears throat> Revelation 14, uh, 16, 14. For they are spirits of demons performing what? Signs, we read this earlier, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Paul warns us <clears throat> that the devil can impersonate an angel of light that the devil has ministers of the gospel. And the, and the only way, if, 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 the only way for you to know it, whether I'm God's minister or the devil's minister is by comparing what I teach with what the word teaches. That's the only way. There is no other way to know. And so if an angel, beautiful, singing gorgeously with all these wings that stands in front of you, all you know is that you have an angel in front of you. That's all you know. You have no idea if it's God's or the devil's, until he opens his mouth. Then you've got to compare what he says with what the Bible says. And if it doesn't line up, tag him out. You with me? So the demons can perform signs and wonders. So just because you, somebody can produce a miracle, just because you see a miraculous event in front of you, all that's communicating to you is that supernatural power is involved. But it doesn't tell you whether it's God's or the devil's yet, until you find out if whatever message is being communicated through that miracle lines up with Scripture or not. Make sense? Okay, that's very fundamental. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. <clears throat> the more I study Scripture, the more convinced I am that our very scientific 21st century minds is about to be confronted with some heavy-duty supernatural events in the days ahead. I think the devil is going to do his level best to deceive God's people in the last days. The world will be easily deceived. But we have got to make sure that we stand on God's word and not on demonstrations. Does that make sense? We've got to make sure where we stand and we've got to make sure we know the Bible. Just saying I I believe in it and not reading isn't going to do me any good. Um... So let's take a look at uh, four biblical tests of a prophet. Very, very important. Uh, Let's take a look at the first, question seven. What is the most important test of a prophet? Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and to the testimony, and that's just the Old Testament way of saying the scriptures, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is a little light in them. 
What is it? Oh, zero. If what they have to say doesn't line up 100% with Scripture, buyer, beware. God is not schizophrenic. It is the Holy Spirit that inspired the Word of God. And if an individual claims to be a prophet, then they're claiming to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not contradict himself ever. Are you with me? No exceptions. Whatever the individual claims to teach. Now, if you have a prophet who says that his prophetic gift overrides Scripture, don't even waste your time with him. He just disqualified himself. That animal doesn't exist. This book right here is the great lie detector. Right here. And if an individual claims to be a prophet, okay, Test what they have to say. And if it doesn't line up 100%, 99.9 doesn't count. If it doesn't line up 100%, you're dealing with a false prophet. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? That has got to be 100% clear. You know, there was a time when Christians leaned on this book. This was the guide of life. We've got to get back to that. You know, the Muslims used to, used to call Christians, sincere Christians, people of the book for that reason. And we have got to be the people of the book, getting back to that. So it has to agree 100%. Let's take a look at question number eight. What is the second test of a prophet? <clears throat> 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that what? Confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And so what, what the Word is telling us is that a true prophet is going to recognize the incarnate God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is the, the self-existing one. He is part of the triune God who always has been, who became flesh and came to this world to save us. A true prophet will acknowledge that. And the church said... Amen. Very, very important. So you just gotta go. If you just go what the Bible says, you're gonna be okay. You'll be safe. Amazing. Take a look at question number nine. What is the third test of a prophet? Matthew 7, 16. You will know them by their what? Their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, in other words, we're looking at individuals. Who, who walk the talk. They live in harmony with God's words. When the Bible refers to fruit, it's talking about fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's not the gift of the person. It's the gift of the Spirit. Because only through the power of the Holy Spirit can those fruits be manifested in the life. Are you with me? So the prophet then would have to reflect those gifts in the life. In other words, those gifts will reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look. Uh, open your Bibles <clears throat> to 2 Peter. Turn with me there. Second Peter chapter one. 
And it's talking about these individuals who contributed to the scriptures. And, um, oops, that was in First Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For prophecy never came by the will of man. Let me stop there. Prophecy isn't about man's opinion. Prophecy is not an opinion. Prophecy is not something conjured up by fallen mortals. For the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by what? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit communicated to them a message. Their job was to communicate what was communicated to them. And one person mentioned uh, Daniel, and you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, <laughs> Daniel was asked to, to interpret uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he couldn't remember his dream. So he had to interpret someone else's dream who could remember their dream. Now, no human being could do that. But God communicated that to Daniel, then he communicated faithfully to the king what God had to say. So it's not, and again, these men were described as uh, godly men, right? These weren't people that were living in sin. These weren't individuals that were living a life of rebellion. These were men and women whose lives were yielded to the loving control of God. That's a voluntary control. Their lives were yielded to Him. And so then God was able to work through their lives. Does that make sense? Very, very important. That's the third test is the fruit. Number 10. What is the fourth test of a prophet? Jeremiah 28, 9. When the word of the prophet comes to what? Pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, <clears throat> you know, I don't know how many of you remember, uh, there's a number of psychics out there and you see these crazy magazines at the grocery store that talk about these prophets and their prediction rate. Some will remember, I think her name was Jane Dixon, the, the prophet to the stars or something, and they bragged that she had a 75% accuracy rate. Uh, friend, if it's not 100%, you already know the source. Isn't that right? The source is not of God. It's of the prince of darkness. And uh, interestingly enough, by the way, <clears throat> there was a magazine called Signs, Signs of the Times that actually tracked one year these predictions of these well-known psychics who are bragging that they had a 75 or 80% accuracy rate, and then at the end of the year tested their predictions, and they had a 3% accuracy rate. That's what it actually was. It was 3%. I think I can guess better than that. Um, but anyway, but one story that really stands out to me that's absolutely amazing actually took place during World War II. For some of you history buffs, you will recall that in the onset of uh, World War II that the Nazi armies were just plowing Europe. Uh, the European amateurish armies were no match for the, the Nazi war machine that was well-disciplined and mechanized. And they were just creaming, they were just bowling over all these armies. And anyway, everybody was just sure that Hitler was going to take over Europe. And, uh, and all the evidence pointed to that fact. There was one man 
who was the editor of a Christian magazine known as Science of the Times. His name was Arthur Maxwell. And this, this na that name might be familiar to many of you because he wrote the, the bedtime stories and also the little Bible stories that you see uh, in, in many times in waiting areas and in um, medical offices, the blue books. Well, he was uh, the editor of Signs, <clears throat> and he knew the prophecy of Daniel. And so he wrote a special edition of the magazine and had it printed and scattered as far and wide as they could. The very front of it was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And in the article, he challenged his hearers, his readers. He said, hang on to this magazine. Hitler is going to be defeated. And everybody thought he was crazy. He said, no, I don't know how and I don't know when. Hitler will not unify Europe. Hitler will be defeated because he was a Bible-believing Christian. He knew prophecy. That prophecy was backed by the mighty arm of God. And Hitler was defeated. He went up against Bible prophecy. You don't do that and win. Let's take a look now at question number 11. What three signs, excuse me, what three things does Paul commend regarding prophecy? <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. This is Paul, a New Testament believer. He says, do not what? Despise prophecies. In other words, he says, don't blow it off. Don't ignore it. Instead, what's his advice? What's the next word? Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. How do you test it? By comparing it to the Bible. Very good, students. That's how you test it. By comparing it to the Bible. You know, Truth, listen very carefully. Let this be etched in your mind. Truth loses nothing by investigation. Truth welcomes in, uh, invest. Truth says, bring it on. Search me all you want. I have nothing to hide. Error does not want to be investigated. Error will censure. Error will take away your voice. Error will not allow you to investigate. It doesn't want you to. That's how error works. Because error has something to hide. Truth never does that. Truth invites investigation. Truth says, bring it on. You know, <clears throat> it's sad when you study the history of God's people in the Old Testament. They were always fascinated with what everybody else was doing and they would eventually lose their focus on God. And then what they would do, they would go into full-blown apostasy, but because they weren't focused on God, they were unaware of their condition. And they did not realize they were heading over the precipice. They were heading towards the precipice. So what God would do is in love, as he saw the crisis coming upon his people, he would send prophets to warn them. And these, these messages were messages of love. You're heading in the wrong direction. This is not the way that you're not worshiping me. You claim to be, but you're not. What you're doing is you're breaking the covenant that you promised with me. You're being unfaithful to me. And of course, when the people heard it, they said things like, oh, we didn't know. Thank you for being so kind, Mr. Prophet, and letting me know. Is that what the people did? No, they didn't. 
they persecuted these men. They killed these men. And finally, they killed the Son of God. Open your Bible. I wasn't planning on this text, but to the book of Daniel. So let me find it here. It is chapter 9. Daniel is in Babylon. And, um, and the whole nation is in Babylon. They're taken captive. And in his beautiful prayer of intercession to the Lord, we find these words that are so precious but also very revealing to us. And uh, Daniel in chapter 9, speaking on behalf of the people, verse 5, he says this, We have sinned and committed iniquity We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we uh, heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and princesses, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And now verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And that's the history of Israel in response, of the people of God of the Old Testament. So here's my question. God sent a prophet today and pointed out the stuff where we have departed from our commitment to him. How would we respond? You know, the message of a prophet is never, ever an option. God doesn't waste his time or ours. When God has something to say, we had better be paying attention. God means what he says, and he says what he means. He doesn't play games like we do. He doesn't. And when you look in, the, in, in, in incidents in the past, like when Noah, the, who was given the gift of prophecy, was foretold what was going to happen, began warning the world of a worldwide flood, a devastating event, um, the people blew him off. His message was not an option. If I said, if I lived in his time and I said, ah, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to church today, I'm not going into the ark. When that door closed, I was going for a swim. You with me? God's message is never an option. When he asks us to do something, we need to do it. I think about... Um, Jeremiah, when God prophesied that the Babylonians were coming, and by the way, that was cataclysmic what happened to the nation. And God was warning them, look, this is going to come upon you guys. Turn back to me so that I have the legal right to defend you because you have divorced yourself from me. And um, to ignore that message was to invite the Babylonian invasion. I want to ask you a question. You know, we've been talking about when, when we want to determine what is truth, to turn to the Word of God, which is the correct thing to do. But many people, instead what they do is they turn to the Internet. So let's put the Internet in Noah's day. Can we do that? So you're coming home from work one day. You decide to take a different path because you hear about this guy who was building a boat on dry land. And as you draw close, you listen to his message that rain's going to fall from the sky, water's going to fall from the sky. And... Um, and that uh, the whole world's going to be drowned. Get in the ark so you can be saved. So you go home and you get on the internet to see, you know, what's being said about it. 
And what will the internet tell you about Noah? That he's a fruitcake. Who builds a, dry, a boat on dry land? And if you listen to what the internet says, you are going to die. If you lived in the time of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is prophesying the Babylonians have come, and you get on the internet, the internet is going to say that look at all these other prophets who are prophesying that we will not be defeated. Jeremiah is a false prophet. Don't listen to him. You listen to the internet, and you're going to be lost. If you listened, if, you, if, the, if the internet existed in the time of Christ, and, um, and you listen to a sermon by Jesus, and you decide to go on the internet to see what, what uh, the internet's saying, you're going to find people saying, the religious establishment of the day, saying that he was Beelzebub, that he was the devil himself. And if you listen to the internet, you have just given away eternal life. My friends, the internet is not inspired of God. In fact, more often than not, the devil's using it. This book, is inspired of God. If you want to know if what the prophet is saying is true, you test it to this. Absolute key. And uh, there's just no other way to look at that. I want to share with you, we talked about the disappointment in a previous study on a, that took place on October 22, 1844, when the Millerites thought that Christ was going to come. They had gotten the date correct. They got the event wrong. Instead of Christ coming to cleanse the earth, he came to the most holy place to cleanse our record of sin before he comes to earth. Of course, they didn't know that in the days following uh, October 22, and they were, they were scattered. They were disappointed. Can you imagine how heart-wrenching that must have been? You know, that you were totally banking. You were ready. You were outside. You had sold your stuff. You had given, you turned your back on your business. You didn't harvest your fields. You wanted to prove to everyone how much you believed that he was coming. You were giving away your wealth. And he doesn't come. Well, groups met. People met in little groups. And... On the East Coast, uh, a number of young ladies got together to pray to ask for God to give them insight as to what happened, where they went wrong. And it was on that day that God gave to a young woman named Ellen Harmon the gift of prophecy. She was 17 years old, had a third grade education, and was a very frail health. And God touched this uh, Methodist girl and gave her the gift. If you will, look at the, the note right below the last page there. And let's le- read a little bit about this woman. On December of 1844, a group of young Methodist ladies were kneeling in prayer in Portland, Maine, when Ellen Harmon, a 17-year-old girl in frail health, received her first vision. As Ellen, who became Ellen White after her marriage to a young minister named James White, related what God had revealed to her, she continued to receive visions and dreams for about 70 years until her death in 1915. As was true for Bible prophets, certain supernatural uh, physical phenomena accompanied Ellen White during her visions. Like the prophet Daniel, she did not breathe while in vision and often 
uh, in, initially lost physical strength. Some of her visions lasted as long as four hours, and by the way, she didn't breathe that whole time. But she, oh, well, it mentions there. She did not breathe the entire time. Doctors who examined her while she was in vision attested to this fact. At other times, she was also given supernatural strength. Though Ellen weighed only 95 pounds, witnesses saw her hold a 17-pound family Bible in an outstretched hand for 30 minutes while in vision. And by the way, I'll probably use this. While she was in vision, she was holding the Bible out like this, and with her fingers, she was reading it, and she couldn't see what she was reading. Absolutely amazing. Somebody got on the chair and started looking to see if she was actually reciting the text correctly, and she was. These and other physical phenomena indicated that there is something supernatural about the experience of a prophet. However, they do not tell us whether the prophet is from God or from Satan. When faced with a supernatural claim to the prophetic gift, Christians must test the claim by the Bible to see if it is true. Now, I'm not asking you to believe this just because I told you, because that would be alarming. What I'm asking you to do is to study this for yourselves. You're in for a rich treat if you do that. So let's just put it up to the four tests we just looked at. The first test are her scriptures and harm is her is her what she teaches in harmony with the scriptures. And this is a couple of beautiful quotes. This first one is from the Great Controversy, pages 204, 205. She says, In our time, there's a wide departure from referring to the Bible to their doctrines and precepts. And there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle of the Bible and the Bible only as a rule of faith and duty. So she, well, you're going to find her writings, she's constantly pointing the reader to the Word of God, constantly referencing the Bible as the standard of right and wrong, as the test of character. I like this next one. This comes from Testimonies for the Church, page 605, volume 2. The written testimonies are not to give new light. In other words, no new truths are introduced by her writings. That's what she's saying there. But to impress vividly upon the heart the truths of inspiration already revealed. Man's duty to God and to his fellow man has been distinctly specified in God's word. Yet but few of you are obedient to the light given. Additional truths is not brought out, but God has, through the testimony, simplified the great truths already given, and in his own chosen way, brought them before the people to awaken and impress the mind with them, that all may be left without excuse. So in other words, this woman who was given the gift uh, of prophecy, her writings is not to introduce new truth, and it certainly isn't to contradict old truth but it acts as a commentary to truth so that we can understand the principles involved. It is a commentary guided by God to help you and me. And I can tell you from my own personal witness, my walk with God has grown, my understanding of Scripture has grown by reading her writings helped me to understand what God is communicating to me. Does that make sense? I'm just sharing with you my testimony and I'm inviting you. You know, if I stood up here and I was eating a tasty meal, let's see, my wife makes this often dish, awesome dish 
with uh, garlic. It's, it's, it's noodles and stuff. I call it death by garlic. And uh, I love garlic. This stuff is amazing. It'll make your test, taste buds scream with joy. And, it, you know, and it, wouldn't after a while you kind of be thinking, you know, I at least want to taste, I want to find out what that tastes like, wouldn't you? And that's what I want to do with her writings. It is such a blessing. I want to invite you, taste and see for yourselves. So let's take a look at the second test. And by the way, as far as her, her emphasis on Scripture, her ministry lasted 70 years. And in her last, her last presentation, her last speaking engagement, she was an elderly woman now in her 80s. And people came from all over uh, to hear the prophet, different denominations. They sat in the audience. The place was packed. And, uh, and even in her old age, she knew how to project her voice. I'm so thankful that I have microphones because I don't know how to do that. So the microphone does it for me. But she had mastered the skill of projecting her voice before the days of microphones. It was a massive audience. And so, you know, they had all the preliminaries, and she was sitting down. And, uh, and finally, it was her turn to speak. And she walked up to the podium, and she picked up her Bible, and she looked at the audience, and she says, I commend to you this book. And she put it back, and she turned around and sat down. That was her last public uh, speaking opportunity. She emphasized this book. Question number two. Second test. Uh, does it teach the truth about Jesus? If you look, four of her, she wrote many books. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> she is, I want to say she's the second most um, prolific writer in American history. I think Benjamin Franklin is number one. She's number two. She is also the second most, she's one of the top three most translated authors in the world, in history. 131 uh, uh, different uh, uh, languages. It, her writings have been translated into 131. But four of her books are about the Lord Jesus. Desire of Ages is a beautiful biography on his life. Christ's Object Lesson uh, is a book about his parables, Steps to Christ, How to Have a Relationship with Jesus Christ, and Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, which uh, is a commentary on the sermon that Jesus gave, which is the clearest presentation of the gospel. And if you read these books, it will just light up your heart. You know, when I have, and, and you know, when I read my Bible, I like to read them in, in connection with these books. Um, because it is a commentary. But I tell you that the Holy Spirit will paint the pictures on the canvas of your mind. You'll be there. It's just beautiful. Uh, she was constantly, that's my point, constantly pointing to Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. She did not draw attention to herself. She was constantly pointing it to him. Beautiful. Now, the third test, lived a godly life. <clears throat> in 1915, she does die, living in Northern California. And the local paper there, the St. Helena Star, July 23, the individual who wrote this article was not a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but from reading the article, you can tell he was a believer. And this is what he had to say in regards to her. It says, the life of Mrs. White is an example worthy of emulation by all. She was a humble, devout disciple of Christ and never went about doing good. She was honored and respected by all who appreciated noble womanhood, consecrated to unselfish labor for the uplifting and betterment of mankind. Her death 
marks the calling of another noted leader of religious thought and one whose almost 90 years were full to overflowing with good deeds, kind words, and earnest prayers for all mankind. Wow. Wouldn't you have wanted her as your neighbor? Someone like that? I want to be that kind of neighbor. But the, the testimony of people that knew her is she had a godly life. The fruits of the Spirit were there. She, she lived what she taught. The fourth test, accurate prophecies. You know, <clears throat> there's so many things I could have put down. I could have been here for a, a while. I encourage you to read this book called The Great Controversy. You will, it, it, it's, it's a book that combines history with scripture. And, and God guided this woman in putting this together to prepare the last generation and what they're about to face. You want a prediction? Here's one. She mentions in here that this beautiful country that we have loved so well will eventually repudiate its constitution. How's that for a prediction? Are we seeing that unfolding now? You know, when she wrote this in the 1800s, people thought, how in the world can that ever happen? People aren't saying that now. They're not. But something else, too, uh, she wrote a lot on health. And in the 1800s, there wasn't much of anything on health. And uh, in the 50s, uh, as, as science, uh, uh, modern uh, medical science was still unfolding, Dr. Clive uh, McKay, who was a former professor in nutrition at Cornell University, uh, he confirms the accuracy of, of Ellen White's writing in the field of nutrition. This is what he had to say. In spite of the fact that the works of Mrs. White were written long before the, mo- the advent of modern scientific nutrition, no better overall guide is available today. And it's really interesting, a lot of the stuff that she was saying only recently within the last 30 years can you actually use medical science to, to back it. But those things were written long before medical science ever got on top of it. And it's really interesting when, when, um, when groups, when scientific groups want to study the effects of nutrition on one's life, and uh, they, they study groups that, have, that live long, Seventh-day Adventists are always involved in that. In fact, National Geographic is one of the last ones to do it. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, are, it's, it's just a proven uh, fact, live longer, have better quality of life. Why? Because they follow the plan that God gave. So, so very important. Another book, and I mentioned this, was Steps to Christ. If you open any of her books, any of her, you turn from just any page, you will find scripture text saturated throughout. And uh, this is another one. I mean, I, I, you know, to say that one's my favorite over the other, I will leave that for you all to wrestle out because <laughs> they've all been a blessing to me. But if any of you don't have these books, you come see me. We will get you lined up with one. Take a look at question number 12. Whose counsel do we reject when we reject the words of a true prophet? Levitic, uh, Luke seven twenty-eight through 30. <clears throat> There is, not, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. But the Pharisees and lawyers, what? Rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You know, when we reject the message that a prophet gives, we're rejecting the one who sent him. You know, I don't know, have you ever been asked by a boss to drop the hammer on somebody, drop the bad news. And when you go to that person, you may have said something like, don't shoot the messenger. 
You know, in other words, you're saying, this isn't from me, it's from the boss, right? The, the prophet did the same. The message from the prophet was a message, if he's a true prophet, from God. So in other words, don't look at the messenger. Know who's behind the messenger. That's the key. Does that make sense? You know, in other words, if somebody looked at Noah and said, you know, Noah really isn't dressed fashionably, I'm not going to listen to what he has to say. It really wasn't about the messenger. It was about the message. That's the key. Because if it's from God, who cares how Noah was dressed? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I invite you all here to taste and see. We're living in a time when people are not thinking anymore. People are just like lemmings and they follow whatever they, the, the crowd is or what the so-called expert says. My friends, that's what they did in Christ's day. That's what they did in Noah's day. We got to swim against the current and think. Think for ourselves and the Bible will teach you how to T-H-I-N-K. It'll teach you how to think. And God has given us prophets to help us understand what he writes. So here is our response to Jesus tonight. Are you willing to test a modern prophet by the Bible and if found true, follow the counsel that God has given through them? Are you willing to do that? May God help us. Let's close out with prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you love us so much you don't give up on us. You've given us the word and it adorns a bookshelf or a table and there's dust on it when many lost their lives for us to have it. And it's your word. And then, Father, we open it and we get frustrated because we can't understand. And to help us, you've given us the gift of prophecy, especially in these last days to help us get it. Father, help us to be wise and not follow the crowd, not to find out what is truth by going to the internet or, or, or conducting a poll, but rather by going to our knees and asking you for help and then opening your book, trusting that you will send the Holy Spirit to us as we study for ourselves. You've promised that if we seek, we will find. Thank you, Lord, because we know your word will not return to you void but will accomplish the thing for which you've sent it. Lord, I ask for your blessings upon all here once more and be with them as they head back. And, uh, and then, Father, I pray that you'll bring each back Monday, Monday evening for our final presentation. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Once again, God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.